Hey everyone, it's Gustavo, the host of the Enable Disabled podcast. I am really excited to have Julie Sawchuk back on the show today. In case you haven't heard her episode, please go hear her first episode. But Julie is a best-selling author, public speaker, and an accessibility consultant and expert. And we are just, she has been up to so many amazing things. And we're so glad to have her back on the show to talk through what's been happening since the last time she was here. A brief description of myself. I am a middle-aged Latin American, uh, light brown skin. My hair is black and it's combed to the front and I am wearing a blue polo shirt. So Julie. Thanks Gustavo for having me back. Yes, I'm so excited. So I am here. um, I am in Southwestern Ontario. I don't know if you can see a little bit of snow out my window, but I'm sitting in my um, bedroom slash office. Um, I'm wearing a purple tank top. Uh, I have black glasses on and they have little sparkles on the rims, which I love. I have blonde hair and um, I have some artwork in the background that is um, by one of the guys that I used to teach with actually. And it's a, a scene with um, beautiful Huron County skies, blue sky, white clouds. That's me. Perfect. Thank you. So let's talk about, you know, some of the exciting things that you have been working on since the last time you were here. Um, Tell us a little bit about, let's start with uh, some of the courses that you started that are on your website now. How did that come about and what inspired that and and what, what tell us about what those courses are and who should be taking them. Yeah, okay, so pandemic, (laughs) that's what started them, right? And um, that whole downtime of, gosh, how am I going to, how am I going to help people build accessible spaces if I can't get to them? And I just, I just thought, you know, books aren't enough. Video is what really helps I mean, aside from actually being in person, seeing it in relatively real time is what helps people understand space and um, access, like, you know, even just rolling under a counter and being able to see that. I put my laptop down on the floor so you can see how my knees and my feet clear underneath the sink and, and have enough space so that I can roll right up to the counter. So making the courses um, was was like an advanced version of a book for me. And it was actually kind of a little bit easier because there's way less editing that has to happen when you're when you're putting together these these kinds of courses. Um, so I I started with the whole home. So it's they're called accessible design and construction. And I've got three. One's the whole home, one is the bathroom and one is the kitchen. And I started with the whole home and I based it on my first book, Build Your Space. Um, But just to have that visual aspect of everything inside and out to show that an accessible home doesn't have to be an institutional looking home, to show that um, accessible features work for more than just a person who uses a wheelchair. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that in my description. I'm sitting in my wheelchair. (laughs) You can't tell on Zoom. I just look like I'm sitting in a chair, right? Um, and then the second one is about bathrooms, mostly about residential bathrooms. Um, but again, it's, it's showing how a person who is seated in a wheelchair transfers onto the toilet, you know, not being able to use their legs. People have a really hard time, um, wrapping their head around it because they don't think about it. They don't want to think about it and they don't have any experience, um, seeing it because it's you know you tend to not hang out in the bathroom with other people so I invite everybody to come and hang out in the bathroom with me (laughs) no shame you've you've done it on I've seen uh, on your YouTube too you've had you've had uh, like events and where you show people or you're at another facility and you you're in the bathroom and you're showing people how you transfer and what could be improved in, in a certain bathroom which I think is it's super helpful for people to see that. Um, I'm glad that you're using 
all of the cool things that you've done in your home in the coursework so that people can can see and experience just how like you said just how beautiful and how beneficial a universally designed home is for for you but for for everyone yeah and in my home too it's not just me right my husband is six three and my teenagers are growing by the minute um so like specifically in the kitchen we have a very universal design that works um, for my tall people and for me. And I want people to see that it's possible. Um, and it's relatively easy, I think. <laughs> now that I've done it, it's easy. <laughs> yeah, once you've done it the first time, it's, it's, it becomes yeah. that way. But it's, it's still like, uh, it's still an awareness problem, right? Fundamentally is, is People don't know it exists. And then when they do learn about it, they think, oh, it's too expensive. I'm going to have to sacrifice this without, without tr truly understanding what the benefits are ahead of time. And the other thing that I see happening um, is figuring it out late in the game, right? So designers, um, uh, builders that are you know, they've got the walls up, they've got the floor poured, they've got the plumbing in, they've got the electrical in. And, and then they go, oh yeah, it's my parents that are living here. Uh, we got to make this a rolling shower. And then they call me up and realize that they're, you know, late in the game in bringing in somebody who knows about accessibility um, but yet they still do it, which is awesome because really like it's never too late to think about accessibility, but it's always best to think about it when the plans are still on paper. And I think I've said that to you before, right? Like you can move a line on paper much easier than you can move a bunch of two by fours. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Just to make a space a little bit bigger or to change the location of the plumbing, um, you know, shifting it over 12 inches when you've poured the concrete floor and the plumbing is embedded in that concrete floor, you can't move it. There are workarounds and there are things to do, but it's much easier to, to start with accessibility as one of your pillars of your design. Absolutely. In terms of the coursework, um, who is it for and what is the is it are they are they introductory courses and then you have ones that go deeper than that like what's the talk us through that a little bit more so they are for people who are going to build their own house right like um if you yourself have a disability and want to build your forever home um they're for you if you are an interior designer or a contractor or an architect they're also for you. And from a, a progression, um, you need to start with the whole home because that's where decisions like um, window height, for example, um, square footage, location of electrical, all of the things that have to happen anyways, right? In terms of building a house, all of those things have to happen, but I show you how to put that lens of accessibility on every single one of those decisions. So they're reg I call them regular house decisions, but what they, what they can see when they do the whole home is how you can just tweak them a little bit and make it work better. So in terms of progression, start there. The bathroom is the most important room in the house. So that's why it's the second one um, of the courses. And if you're going to do any course at all and you're an architect, do the bathroom course because you learn all sorts of things that you wouldn't have had the experience to learn yourself unless you are a person with a disability. And then the kitchen is the second most important because it's where um, accidents happen, right? Where where safety is, I mean, safety is number one in the bathroom and then safety in the kitchen. So that's sort of the progression. 
they're available all oh contractors i want everybody who's involved in design and construction or thinking about building a house building a house for them building a house for their parents building a house for the future of their child that has a disability like it's kind of hard to design something for everybody but i kind of think i have <laughs> that makes me sound like i have a big head but i don't know i'm trying i just but want no i think it's great have you run into any <laughs> any products um i know you've done some consulting work with some manufacturers have has anything new come out to the market that you've been really impressed with um what i've realized is i need a go-to list because people will ask me hey julie what's the best um wall hung roll under sink and i'm like oh right okay i remember this one on this site and i should have you know taken a snapshot of the manufacturer and the product number because it worked really well um same with like adult size change tables or baby change tables um i do have a preferred supplier for grab bars um and and there's like toilets i had a i had a chat in the bathroom with okay so i'm a i'm a member of a group of women who all have spinal cord injuries and we all do fitness together and we also talk about life and all sorts of other things right it's my my peer support i'd love to talk to you about peer support and how important that is so that's a sidebar but um we hung out in the bathroom together on wednesday night in my bathroom here and i we're all we're all at different stages in our abilities and we all have slightly different abilities with our with our bodies in terms of how how high our level of injury is and all of that and we get on and off the toilet differently. We shower differently, all of that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so we're chatting in the bathroom and one of my friends said, okay, what's the best toilet? Where, how can I find the tallest toilet? And I'm like, right, I need to have, I need to have it. So that's one of the things that is on my list to develop, to have on my website so that people can find the go-to tall toilet, the best wall hung sink, the best grab bars, all of those features that are sometimes overwhelming if you don't exactly know what you're looking for or you don't have a um, personal experience with them i want to help people find those right things that's so. important that'd, that'd be a great list to compile um, especially how mm -hmm. quickly can you see a product um, and and have a good sense of whether or not it's going to work or is it something that you actually have to physically physically touch and, and see. Yeah, I really want to experience it. <laughs> Use it. Um, and, and it has to be like in place too, right? Like um, it, the grabber has to be attached to the wall. The sink has to be on the wall because a lot of it has to do with placement too. Um, and the, you know, the structural support that's provided behind it and, and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, I really want to physically interact with it before I would recommend it. Okay. That makes sense. And so let's, and I tell that to people too, like try before you buy as much as possible. Yep. Showrooms. I know that the pandemic has made things a bit more complicated, but going to a showroom, seeing the product, trying it out. It's, you never know. It's, it's so easy for a photo to, to fool you or to not show really what, what the product can do or not do. Right. It's, it's hard to tell from, from a picture. Yeah. And that's a big dream of mine is to have like a bathroom showroom that is um, the ultimate setup in a bunch of different scenarios of um, you know, roll-in showers, shower benches, grab bars, tubs, tub lifts, um, different types of taps. Like, how sweet would that be? Like, picture a Home Depot that's all just different accessible bathroom designs and accessible bathroom features. And because you can go to a Home Depot and look at their selection of grab bars and be slightly underwhelmed and overwhelmed at the same time. 
Yep. Nothing looks like it's exactly what I need, but there's all sorts of things to choose from and I'm not sure which to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think it'll also be interesting to see, uh, to have you as you, as travel keeps opening up, right, to go to maybe a kitchen and bath show in Europe or even someplace like Japan where their toilets are on a completely different level than, than ours. And to be able oh, to bring some that. of those products over. Okay, we're gonna have a road trip, you and me. <laughs> road trip sounds fun. Road trip sounds fun. <laughs> um, tell me, tell me a little bit about. Let's talk about the the importance of peer support group. It's an important sidebar. Mm. Um, I was talking to. The episode isn't out yet, but I was talking to a foundation in California where they help people who have spinal cord injuries uh, in their rehab process and with their mental health and getting them, getting them as fit and functional and capable as they can, you know, to get back out into the world and do the things that they want to do. And we did talk a lot about mental health, but we didn't really get into that peer support group that you need just kind of forever, right? They're beneficial for everybody. Um, tell us a little bit more about how you found this group and, and what's made it so beneficial for you. Uh, I so my first peer support group happened in rehab, right? The, um, the rehab center where I, um, where I was for three months. And then I went back more or less weekly to do therapy and um, their focuses on spinal cord injury. So I would run into the same people because I was usually there on the same day and, and we ended up forming a nice tight bond and um, we were all women and we all had about the same level of injury. My level's T4 and we were using the functional electrical stimulus bikes that push electricity into your legs and then you actually get to pedal. And um, it's an amazing, amazing form of therapy. And you're, you're stuck to those bikes, right? Like you're actually stuck with electrodes. So you can't just hop off and, you know, you're not there for 10 minutes, you're there for an hour and a half. So we would get into some good deep conversations about life and, you know, when you when you have a body that doesn't function uh quote unquote normally in terms of like bowel bladder kind of stuff those are always the conversations that come up and everybody deals with things differently and it's nice to hear those stories with people that have dysfunctional bladder and bowel because then you realize that there are different ways you can try things that might make it easier or um, you realize that people are having the same struggles that you are and like you literally talk shit for an hour. Um, but my, my, of course, the pandemic shut that down and I didn't realize how much I missed that aspect of peer support until I found it again. And that was with um, a group called the Disability Icons. And it's a group of women from across Canada and um, the US started by Sarah Foley. She's now in Utah. And we, um, we were meeting once a week and doing workouts together. And that everybody was, uh, everybody had a spinal cord injury. Everybody's a woman. A lot of them are moms. So we talk about being a mom with a disability. Um, we talk about being a woman with a disability. We talk about being trapped in our homes because of COVID, like everything and anything. And the, the support that happens, um, it's just, they're, they're, I don't even know how to put words to it. It's so important. It's so meaningful. And it like just, knowing that other people are having the same feelings um, and just talking through them or even just listening. It's sometimes you just listen and you go, right, I'm, we're all in this and we're all okay. And we're going to get through it and tomorrow's going to be a better day. That's 
sometimes where the conversations go and sometimes they're really funny and sometimes we end up talking about bras like it's totally random <laughs> it's it's interesting that you mentioned um uh what it's like to be a mother with a disability because that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that we didn't talk about the last time, um, how has that, how has that changed, and how have your kids adapted? Like, what's the dynamic like now that you know they've they've seen you're still the same person, but you're not right. You're a different mm -hmm. you're a different Julie than you were before and in mostly better ways but how, what was that and I didn't know you before it's just it's just an assumption I'm making um but, but what can you talk a little bit about what that what what was that like for them and how did you handle it and how has the dynamic evolved as you've as you've gotten stronger as you've gotten you know more more active in making more of an impact in the world um, it, it's been really interesting because they were, uh, like nine and 11, I think when I had my accident and still in an age when, um, they weren't particularly independent. Right. And now they are 15. Oh no, Oliver's going to be 16 on Monday. So 16 and 18. And they're, gosh, I don't even know. The, they're less dependent on me and I'm more dependent on them um, because they, they're older, they, um, they follow instructions really well now. <laughs> and their, their level of empathy, I think, because of our situation is higher than maybe other kids their age. Um, but they're also really sick of me talking about accessibility. Like, you know, with us, our bodies go with us everywhere we go and therefore so is our disability and our need for accessibility. And I literally can't go anywhere without working and being that strategist, that problem solver, like, oh man, this place needs to fix this. And my kids will roll their eyes and go, oh, here she goes again. But they get it. Like, it's not a, oh, here she goes again. God, I'm so tired of it. It's here she goes again. And we're going to go along with her. And um, they're super supportive. They, yeah, they pull my chair in and out of the car when they're with me. They, they're now strong enough to lift me. Um, you know, if I am in a precarious position and I need assistance to get back into my chair or to get from my snow cart back into my wheelchair. Um, so it's super fun. I, I, I regret the day when they leave home. Um, I'm going to regret all of the days after they have left home because I often take advantage of them. Like, um, hey, can you go and get something from the pantry for me? Because then otherwise mm -hmm. I don't have to get up and go and get it, right? If I'm in my lazy boy, for example. But um, I don't know. They're just wonderful people and I love them to death. And they have grown up in the past six years with a different life than what was laid out for them initially but the empathy thing is huge and mm -hmm. i'm sure that they see that helps them treat and deal with other people in a much better way than they would have otherwise and i'm guessing that they if anything they look up to you and respect you and admire you even more now I hope that's the case. And the other thing is I have a very different circle of people that I interact with um, than I did before. Most of my friends were teachers and, and teacher friends. And now um, a much bigger part of my circle of, of friends and people that I interact with are people with disabilities. And had I not been in this situation, they would never 
likely have met these people, let alone hung out and spent time with them and, um, you know, developed the patience that is required to listen to a person that has, um, you know, difficulty speaking, for example. Um, so that part of it's pretty cool. I think it's amazing. I, I think it's going to help them a lot. I know, uh, I hope that that happens too with my brother's kids, you know, but we'll, we'll see, they're still young. So it's, it's hard to tell where that's going to go, but, um, uncle Gus, uncle Gus, exactly. <laughs> I it's, love it so much. it's, it's, it's great to, it's great to hear that because they're, they're going to welcome differences and different people, different abilities, very, you know, variation is to me, the one of the, the things that keeps life so interesting and, and they're gonna be more open to that than most other people. Absolutely, they will, yeah. no doubt. Mm -hmm. I love listening to you have conversations with other people because like, I feel like I, I know you really, really well. And I'm sure people say this to people that, you know, host podcasts, they, they feel like they're their best friend because you're just listening in on all their conversations, but knowing that, that it, it's one way you speaking to me um, and, and, and with your guests, but I learn things about you. And um, I, I love the way you allow space in your conversations. I know some other podcasts would clip out anything that was, um, you know, time to think about an answer. And I love how you give your guests that time and you, you save that time um, for your audience as well, because I find that beneficial when I'm, when I'm listening to a conversation, when there's a pause, it's, it's a little bit of processing time. Anyways, I, I'm happy that you do that. I think it's great. Thank you, Julia. I really appreciate that. It's not uh, silence. Silence uh, is an awkward thing, but I have learned to embrace it and to let it, like you said, create that space because we don't want to, mm -hmm. it's also interesting. Like I hear podcasts where they, some people do, some people don't, but when they do, you're right. It gives you as a listener the time to process it yourself and think well what's mm -hmm. the person going to say or what would I say or how do I think about this so it, it becomes it pull, hopefully it pulls people in more and one of the conversations that you had recently um where you talked oh gosh there's a couple of things so you talked about the three buckets I want to talk about that and the the question of if you could go, if you could eliminate your disability tomorrow and carry on, but not know all of the things that you've learned, would you do it? I answered that question really quickly and it really surprised me. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and answer that question right now, even though you haven't asked me because I'm fascinated by it. And then I had a conversation with my husband about it. So if I were able to get my body back to not having a spinal cord injury tomorrow and forget everything that I've learned in the past six and a half years, I wouldn't do it, which is nuts to me. Like the logical part of me is like, no, I want my body back. I want to be able to pee when I want to pee and you know, walking would be an awesome thing to and get back to my sports and get back to being outside. But I have learned so much and met so many amazing people that have allowed me to grow as a person that I'm flabbergasted that I would say no. Like, it's so bizarre. It's a hard question. That was a yes, and and a, a powerful one that Kim Kim had asked. Um, it is bizarre. Yes. I it is bizarre, and I think it's probably more bizarre 
for for you than it is for me because mm -hmm. I have I was born this way and this is all I have ever known and it's it's easy in a way to see somebody who is non-disabled and say well they're moving easier than me and they can do certain things that I can't do it's it's kind of it's almost like a trap to say sure why wouldn't I want that um yeah but I would also not be the person that I am today. And I worked really hard to be this human being and I don't want to give that up. That's how I kind of rationalize it. Is, is that, is that a similar like thought process with you or is there, am I missing uh, something? No, you're, you're right in that um, I am a different person. I'm in a different place in my head. Um, than I was six years ago. I'm in a different place in my relationships, um, my relationship with my husband, uh, with my kids, with my community. Um, yeah, and and reading um, reading sitting pretty and and seeing Rebecca's perspective of growing up with her spinal cord injury and using a wheelchair. Um, gave me a whole nother insight on being a wheelchair user um, and, and seeing that my perspective is also complete, even though we are in exactly the same situations, being women who are mothers with wheelchairs, um, mine only started when I was 41. And that just gives a whole nother, I have two sides of a coin. Um, and if I were to flip it, I think I would stay where I am, <laughs> which on a day like today makes me, makes me second guess that because it's, I want to go skiing. Like it, the sun is out, we have amazing snow and I was a skier and it breaks my heart to not be out there and doing that. But I, I feel like I am making even more of a difference in the work that I'm doing now than when I was a teacher. I think it's, it's interesting to think about the things that we lose and not just if, regardless of whether you have a disability or not, but the things that we lose uh, just as we age, there's things that mm -hmm. I could do when I was younger that are not so easy to do today. And um, my body is not in that place anymore. Uh, and I, it feels a little bit, a little bit like that, except with age, it's much more gradual. And mm -hmm. right. So there's, there's an element of that, that I see too, where I would love to go out and uh, play tennis the way I did, you know, 15, 20 hours a week, but I'm not, I'm not in that place. My body is not going to hold up anymore with that, but I miss it. You mm -hmm. know, so it's, it's in a way, it's also part of just being a human being and, and living, living for longer periods of time. And don't you see that people with disabilities embrace aging a little bit more um, readily than people that don't have disabilities. I, I just keep seeing this as like a pattern um, when I'm helping people design their own personal spaces, right? Their own homes. Um, people who are building their retirement home don't necessarily wanna have that conversation about wanting to have a zero step shower or a roll under workspace in the kitchen. Oh, I'm never going to need that. I'm not going to need that. Um, or, or building their house. So it's slab on grade and they don't have any steps, you know, Oh, you know, let's build this whole retirement community with five steps. So everybody has to walk up steps to get into their house. Really? Cause people don't want to have conversations about aging. But what I find is when I talk to people with disabilities, they know that their body is going to decline in its ability because they're already in that situation of the body not working the way it's you know intended to work and i wish that that were different because 
I think we get trapped in this. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we will always continue to be able to do it, um, which is to our detriment. And in the end is gonna cost us more money or cost us injury that may not have needed to happen because of the way we have designed spaces. Yep, I see that. I see that too, you're right. It, it makes sense, but you see that as well with, uh, now we're getting philosophical here, which is great. Um, <laughs> you see that with uh, men and women as they age, right? They're, they're coloring their hair or they're doing Botox or mm. they're, they're doing, they're taking whatever they can take um, supplement wise, that this is going to slow down the aging process. This is going to keep you young. This is going to keep you, keep you fit and looking like you were in your twenties. And there's this whole like escapism from what's happening with your body as you get older. Some of it's good, but some of it isn't. And then people avoid the things that can make their lives a little bit easier or a little bit more comfortable or healthier because they don't want to, they don't want to admit that these things are happening. You're right. And people yeah. with a disability, at least with me, um, just make the best of it. We've already evolved and adapted and problem solved. So we just keep doing that and, mm-hmm. and see where it takes us. And I, when I'm feeling my strongest, I feel like the only thing that's going to stop me is, is when I die, whatever else comes, like I'm going to deal with it it's going to be fine. I don't know if you feel that way too. When I'm my strongest. Yes. I feel like I can, I can manage anything, uh, throw a UTI at me though. And I'm like, no, this is ridiculous. (laughs) I cannot continue to do this. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it depends on what's going on, but those are less frequent these days, which is nice and go to bed exhausted wake up feeling still a little bit tired but it's it's a fresh day yep yep but we we life takes a toll on our bodies i mean look Mm -hmm. at how how much we work how much we travel how much we we the toll that are that it takes over time you know i see it too with clients that they have these steps in their homes that don't make any sense. There's no handrails. If they drink too much one night, they're going to fall one day and hurt themselves pretty badly. And it, yeah. you want to see the designers and the architects and the builders step up and say, hey, you know, like, why, why are these steps really here? Does this, is this really enhancing some aesthetic in your space? Like, have we thought this through? Why are we really doing this? Is there another way we could do this where we don't have to risk you or your parents or whoever, mm-hmm. or some friends one day slipping and falling and really hurting themselves because it looks cool to have a couple more steps in, you know, in this living yeah. room. Yeah. Yeah. There's some pretty scary statistics about um, falls and, you know, elderly people falling and ending up in hospital um and i wouldn't want to give you the numbers because i'm terrible at remembering numbers my friend jason at healthcraft would be able to rhyme these numbers off just like that because that's what they do is they they are fall prevention but the the incidents that lead to hospitalization and then not being able to come home is it's phenomenal mind-blowing numbers and so whatever we can do to help people understand to design for safety um, is going to save everybody heartache and money. You know, government, government paying for hospitalization for people that shouldn't have been in the hospital in the first place if we had designed our spaces better. Yep. Full circle. True. So I want to talk about, and if you have more questions, you know, we have the time, but I wanted to highlight something pretty amazing that you have just accepted. So I will, I will let you tell us what that is, but I think this is absolutely phenomenal. You are going to be working uh, with the government in Ontario. Please tell us about how that, how that happened and what it is and what you're going to be doing. 
Yeah, so um, I'm still a little bit um, in shock about it all and, and curious about how it's all going to roll out, but I am going to be the chair of the um, design review committee for, okay, so in Ontario, we have the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, similar to the ADA, but just for our province. And within that act, there are six or seven different sort of bodies of regulation. One is about communication, one is about transportation, um, and one is design of public spaces. So um, parking lots, sidewalks, recreational trails, um, information kiosks, uh, service counters. There's all of that outside spaces that aren't incorporated into the Ontario Building Code, but then there's a little tiny bit that is also a part of the Ontario Building Code. So there's a little bit of crossover. Anyways, those regulations, um, the government has um, committed to reviewing every five years. So the review is now two years overdue because of COVID. And um, I have been asked to chair the committee that is going to do that review of the design of public spaces document. It's, um, this is an example of it. It's like, you know, 110 pages. Um, and, but the exciting thing for me um, is, that I am bringing a rural perspective and as the chair, as a person with a disability, um, I get to help select the people that are gonna be on the committee and I get to help guide this process of going through this entire document to see where it's being helpful and where it needs to be improved. And if you notice the way I said that, both of those things have a positive tone to them, right? Where it's being helpful and where it needs to be improved, not this sucks. <laughs> and that is, that's my approach, Gustavo, is I, I am a positive person and I wanna bring the positivity to the table first before we look at, um, okay, and these are, some, these are some ways that we, these are some things that need to be improved. And in all of my, um, in all of my six and a half years of living with a disability, like ooh, ooh, I am still in kindergarten, right? Um, in all of my experience, the, the approach that is the most effective is that this is what you're doing well, here are some areas that need to be improved. Um, so I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm, I'm also feeling, um, unsure because I feel like I have a massive learning curve of the political process that I need to understand who is like the acronyms that are used in this world of accessibility and government um, oversight and regulation. Um, the acronyms alone, like I need an entire dictionary and I want a little flowchart of who is responsible for which aspect of design um, and accessibility because in Ontario, it falls to the Ministry of um, Municipal Affairs. It, fall, it falls to um, municipalities themselves. The, then there's the governing body, um, like the minister himself, which is the Ministry of Seniors and Accessibility. Um, transportation comes into it. Like there's, there's all sorts of ministries with fingers in their pot. And I mean, as you know, accessibility is literally involved in everything that we do. Um, so where does this committee review, like where are the, the sidelines where, where when we get off the field, we don't actually have any say in the game that's going on on the field. But I'm also excited because I think there can be some valuable conversations about education and about funding. And although those aren't a part of the actual act in, in the, the Design of Public Spaces Act, I think that we can influence the conversations about helping um, college and university programs incorporate 
accessibility into the teaching that they do. And we can help the ministries see that funding has to be available, whether it's like outright funding like grants or whether it's tax credits for um, improving access and you know giving a tax credit for the expense of putting a ramp in or redesigning a bathroom. Um, and cutting some of the red tape, like, oh, if I change this bathroom in my restaurant, then I have to get the health unit involved. Well, really? Like, let's, let's make that an easier process so that people aren't so afraid of making change. And then the, the one, so I, I had quite a few conversations with the staff at the ministry to, you know, to find out really what they wanted me to do and what I was getting myself into. And one of the things that was on my list of this has to be a point of discussion or I'm not going to do it is, is the, the loopholes, right? The grandfather clauses of spaces that were designed prior to this year, they don't have to meet those standards because that was when they were built. So, you know, they can sweep it under the carpet. And so when you talked about the three buckets, who are you having that conversation with? Uh, was uh, that it is Kim? a good question. I th it might've been Diego. Um, no, it was a woman. It was either Kim or So the, the idea of the three buckets from what I remember your conversation was there are three ways that we can help people with disabilities. One is through legislation, right? One was for providing opportunity like employment and yeah. making that more available um, by designing accessible spaces um, and creating accessible communications and support accommodations for people in their workplaces. And then your third bucket was changing conversations, right? About um, empathy and understanding and bringing people with disabilities um, to the table, to the discussion. Help me out here. What else? Um, right, it's changing, changing the hearts and minds of the people yes. who, yeah, who don't have, who are non-disabled about who we are, what we can do, what we can bring to the table, yeah. Right, and, and the point that, that you guys made in that conversation that really struck home with me was if you don't have that third bucket filled, these two other buckets, people are gonna find workarounds. People yeah. that aren't committed and understanding are going to continue to take advantage of a loophole in a building code, a grandfather clause. And that's why the discussions that you have are so incredibly important. When you talk to Steve about his vestibular disorder and you know the fact that he has been lying on the couch because he hasn't he hasn't he has this massive, you know, like the, the invisible disabilities is something that I um, was definitely not aware of for a very long time. And so the more conversations that you have with people that have invisible disabilities, um, the more enlightened I feel. And I love you for that because it's so important. I. I was talking to a group of um, high school students yesterday. So one of the other things that I do is I, is I teach high school students that are involved in um, a program here in the province. And I, I said to them, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I am here representing people with disabilities and helping you guys have a new lens of what accessibility is and um, everything that goes along with that. But I wish that you didn't see me as I am as a wheelchair user because 
me representing people with disabilities gives the impression that everybody's a wheelchair user, right? And you forget about all, or you forget, it's not even that you forget because you've never known about it in the first place, about um, all the other shit that people are dealing with, with their bodies that you can't see. Mine is, mine is the most obvious disability that there is. It, I mean, it's the international symbol of access, right? So doesn't everybody with a disability use a wheelchair? No, what's like 20%, 30%. So those three buckets, I'm, I'm gonna create an image of, of that somehow to incorporate into the speaking that I do because that, um, that visual, it's even better than um, the visual of, of equity and equality and, you know, the, the people standing on the box to look over the fence to watch the baseball game. Like, that's what, that's what is needed. That's a that's fascinating, that's a fascinating point. I'm really, uh, really happy that you feel that way, that it struck home and resonated with you. And it, it's, uh, it's interesting because I think it's correct. And I think you're right. You're taking it further with the visual. I think you're right that we can turn this into something visual that has more of an impact so that people get it. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I also think it's incredible that the city of Ontario has brought you in as the chair. You know, it's the person with the disability. It's what the activists talk about all the time. If somebody with a disability is not at the decision-making table, it doesn't count. And you are leading the decision-making table, which is phenomenal. Um, and I, I just, I know you're gonna figure it out. It's gonna be a learning curve and it's gonna be politics or politics and they have mm -hmm. their, own, their own dynamics, but just the fact that you're at the table and you're able to pick your team and you're able to have this influence is, really exciting uh, i'm sure there's going to be some good things that come amazing things that come out of it do you um so how are you how are you thinking about avoiding or getting people to disincentivizing them from taking these loopholes what's the mm -hmm. what's the initial strategy that you're thinking about there um i haven't even got that far yet honestly the the thing that I am thinking about, oh, yes, that was the other conversation of yours. Um, the, the dealing with conflict. Who, who are you having the discussion with about dealing with conflict? I'm it was terrible. Derek. Derek. With Derek. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Listening, to, listening to Derek talk about um, conflict and like hostage negotiations, that's what made me think. Um, or that conversation made me realize that setting up this, like the very initial conversation with these 23 or 25 people, right? And, and starting it on a note of, you know, we are in this together. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna share our personal experiences and um, the, reframing questions from yes questions to no questions I'm still trying to wrap my head around that and I actually like wrote stuff down after I listened to you guys because I was going right into a conversation that I wanted I wanted it to be I want them to say yes right but I, I figured out how to reframe it so that it was and if you don't know what I'm talking about it's because I don't really know what I'm talking about but go back and listen to the conversation that Gus had with Derek because um, it, it will reframe, it will start to reframe how you think about asking people for help yeah. and, and asking know that. people on your side. I, I have, uh, I'll send you his book. So we have some books that we still haven't completely given away yet. So I'll send you a copy of his book. Derek is amazing. And yes, the no oriented questions are yes. really powerful because people don't feel the pressure to answer yes to something that they may not be ready to commit to. It's always like when you say yes to something, the idea is 
what have I just stepped into that maybe I don't want to step into? But if you reframe it as a no-oriented question, it's easier for them to say, it's easier for them to, to agree with you or to say, to say no to something in a way that is affirming. Or if they say yes to that, then you know, oh, this person is uncomfortable going here. Let's figure out why. Yes. And, and that is, um, you know, when this committee comes together, the, the mandate is that 50% of the committee at a minimum are people with disabilities. And um, so all of those people have their own lives that they can share with everybody else that comes to the table. And um, I wanna, as my number one goal is to elevate the consciousness about living with a disability for those people who are at the table that don't have disabilities for, um, you know, as an example, perhaps a city engineer um, who is representing the engineers of Ontario um, may not be a person with a disability and may not have experience with firsthand accessibility. So my, you know, my alter goal is, is simply educate and inform and enlighten um, so that that person then takes that, develops a, a higher level of empathy and that becomes a trickle down you know, into the engineering society of Ontario or whatever it happens to be. But um, yeah, I've, I'm dreaming big. <laughs> you should, you should. Uh, it's, you've got the opportunity. It's incredible. Uh, I wonder, like, do you, when you talked before about um, your approach being from a place of positivity, this is what we're doing well, this is what we can improve upon. Mm-hmm. If that was, if that comes from your background as a teacher, mm. did you approach students that way too? Um, I liked to, I, I can honestly say that I didn't always. And there are conversations that are stuck in my head um, that happened with students that and, and this is one of the reasons why I say I would not want to unlearn everything I've learned in the past six and a half years is because um, like I remember when I was a student teacher giving a student feedback about um, their handwriting because I couldn't read what they were writing. And they, on my student, eva- my student teacher evaluation form that the kids, the kids did after I was finished my three week stint of teaching them. Um, I'm pretty sure it was that same student said, I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can to make my handwriting neat. And, and I was like, oh my God, of course they are. Like, why did I not know that? And so, and that was, that was 23 years ago. And that sticks in my head and has come up more in the past six years than, than it did in all of the years that I was teaching in the 15 years that I was teaching, um, that people are doing the best that they can and are dealing with way more than I can see and understand. So how would you, how would you approach that student today? Um, if I were in that same situation today, I would have a conversation with them about it to see if there was something that I could do to help them. And then be way more accepting (laughs) of, of them, of their abilities, um, and look past that handwriting to what the handwriting is saying. Is, I guess you, you, it's easy to start from the assumption that a student who's not performing some task the way we think they should, that they're not trying hard enough, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, mm-hmm. that's great that you, 
it's easy to say, oh, that person's slacking off. They're, they're just being lazy. They don't want to do the work. And now you'd start it from, let, let me assess this better to see what's actually what, going on. What's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that we can help. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or just give space for it, right? I, my, my son is almost 16. Um, he's a boy. I was never a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> and I, I say that with like, sounds like vehemence, but I don't mean it to. <laughs> it's just a different experience from, from when I was, was 16. And um, I am learning and practicing giving him space to be who he is and to try and stop my mom version of what I want him to be or what I think he should be or the way I think he should be doing something. I'm just trying and practicing because I'm, and I say I'm practicing, I'm saying that on purpose because I don't get it right a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's courageous to say, and that's important. You know, that's, that's hard. Parenting is, uh, I'm not a parent and I, but I see it. It's it, it's one of the hardest things that that we do. Yeah, and it's been. Um, I, this is like a catchphrase, you know. This has been a hard parenting season, this whole pandemic thing. Um, but it has. It's been hard and hard for no matter what age your kids are at. Um, it has its challenges that we never thought we would have to be up against. Yep. And, oh yeah, we could talk about that all day. Like, <laughs> yeah. So what, when do you start the, uh, your role here? As so the goal is to start um, before, I think before the mid-March. So the, the committee um, is being like, listed in terms of who are people we will approach and that's the thing right just because um, we've got them on a list of people that we would like to ask doesn't mean they're going to say yes so um, we may have a list of 30 people and and 20 people might say no and then we'll have to find other people that we would like to to fill those roles so um, I'll be a part of those discussions I have a few ideas of people that I would really like to have at the table um, or skill sets that I would really like to have at the table. Um, but I have a lot of reading to do. <laughs> Things that have, you know, transpired in the past, reports that have come out in the past, the public feedback that has come back um, about design of public spaces in Ontario. Um, there's a lot of public feedback already. So I want to be very familiar with that to see where people's biggest concerns are. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where my concerns align with other public feedback. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I hope that in the next, maybe, you know, I don't know how, what, let's give ourselves a good time frame, but hopefully in five years or three years, whatever it is, you can come back for whatever the sixth, seventh, tenth time on the show, and we can you can come back and say, you know what, Ontario is now one of the most accessible cities in the world, and we've done all these amazing changes, not only to the public spaces, but to you know resident residentially, and mm -hmm. all of these avenues have opened up. And, you know, we're just inviting more people to come and experience what a city can actually be if it's, if it's designed with accessibility, uh, with accessibility in mind and inclusivity of, of more people. Yeah. And I, I just have to correct you just because Canadians listening will, will be like, Ontario's not a city, Ontario's a province. Okay. <laughs> Province, the Sorry, most accessible yeah. province. <laughs> but yes, I would love to be able to come back in two years when this process is done to say this is what the regulations are like now 
And then maybe in two years after that to say, this is how things have changed. This is what I am starting to see. And um, wouldn't that just be the bee's knees? Absolutely. Well, mm -hmm. I would love to offline, you know, any kind of masterminding, throw ideas at me, any, you know, any brick walls that you run into, like, let me know. I'm here to help. And I think that your project is incredible. And, and I want to I want to see it succeed as much as possible. Thank you so much. I, I think we have lots to talk about. Um, I especially am interested to know what happens with ADA and loopholes, because I'm sure there must be. Um, so that will be another conversation you and I can have at some point, or you can help me connect with people that that is that is their thing. Absolutely. I can yeah. definitely do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I am, again, it's, it's always a pleasure to see you, to talk to you. I think you are incredible human being. It's an honor to have you on the show. Um, tell us one more time, how can people connect with you? How can people find you, you know, mm -hmm. purchase your classes, get your books? Yes, so um, juliesachuk.ca is where you can find everything and Sachuk is spelled S-A-W-C-H-U-K. Um, and that's .ca because I'm in Canada. Um, so look me up there and um, I'm, I'm trying to do better at posting more on YouTube um, because seeing it is understanding it. Um, at least I think it is, so. And your YouTube, of, your YouTube channel is, is Julie, Julie Sasha. Yep. Okay. Yep. So find me there. Um, my, my most recent post is my new snow cart, which is like, um, it's like a snowmobile, but it's electric. It's battery powered. So it doesn't, it doesn't pollute. And it's um, a little bit easier for me to get on and off of, and it doesn't go a million miles an hour. It goes like um, I think the top speed I got it up to was 17 kilometers an hour, um, which for you is like, I don't know, maybe eight miles an hour, like slow. Um, so safe, but it gets me out in the winter and it gets me out in the snow. And I only got stuck one time when it was really deep. My husband says, okay, so don't go where it's deep. <laughs> what do I do? I go down and I go back into the trees where it drifts and I get stuck. It's a good thing I had my cell phone in my pocket. My daughter answers the phone. Hey, mom, are you stuck? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well, I, I definitely want to see videos of that. It, hopefully, you know, as you get used to it and you get better at it, they'll come up with ones with bigger batteries that can, yes. that can go no a little faster. Home. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Thank you so much, Gustavo, you, for having me. Thank you for all of the amazing podcasts you have done and all of the amazing guests that you have had. Um, everybody has a story that is so valuable for everybody to hear. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, Julie. Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening and for giving me such amazing feedback. And it's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Bye. everyone.